Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Lord, we need you in this service. We need you in this moment, God. We come to study your word. We believe it's from your spirit, from your voice, and so we ask that you would speak this morning to us. God, no one came to hear me this morning. We came to hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say. We came to study your scriptures with honesty. So guard my lips, God, of anything I say isn't from your heart. I pray that it would pass through one ear and out the other. But everything that comes from my lips and from your scriptures that is from your heart, God, we pray that it would pierce and sting us, God. It would change us and mold us. We need you, Holy Spirit. Lord, we'd rather have one word from your mouth than a thousand words from any other. We just want to hear you this morning. I need you, God. I desperately need you this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Okay, Philippians chapter 3. And again, we're going to be in verse 12 through 16 today. Sometime last year, I read something on Eric Liddell and became fascinated with him for quite a bit. Do you, do you remember that movie Chariots of Fire that came out in 1981 about Eric Liddell? 1981 was a little bit before my time. I'm sorry to admit that. Um, you'll be happy to know that I did turn 29 this week. So if you can give me one more year, one more year, and you'll be able to say my pastor's in his young 30s. And you won't have to say my baby pastor's still in his 20s. Just one more year. But Eric Liddell, remember, won the 400 meter in the 1924 Olympics. And the 400 meter wasn't his race. That wasn't his specialty. Um, the 100 meter sprint was his thing. But the Olympics decided that the 100 meter sprint was going to be on Sunday. And Eric decided that he wouldn't compete on Sunday in order to honor the Lord and the Sabbath. Um, and remember, he goes on in that Olympic year and he ran the 200 and placed third and ran the 400 meter and won the thing. He was quite a runner. They called him the flying Scotsman. No one has ever used the word flying as an adjective for me. Maybe jiggling. They've called me jiggling or rolling, but they've never called me flying. Not yet. You remember in the movie, he, he once ran a quarter mile race after being knocked down at the start, which is unheard of because a quarter mile is a little short. So if you get knocked down, it, it's not a very good chance that you could catch up. So he gets knocked down right at the beginning of the race um, and he gets back up and he runs like all get out. And, and he said later, he said, the first half of the race, I ran as fast as I could. The second half, I ran faster with God's help. After he crosses the finish line wins, he totally collapses. The, I think the movie doesn't tell you. Maybe it does. Um, I don't I remember. Um, but he, it took him quite some time to recover from that race. He had, was totally exhausted from the energy that he exerted. Showed perseverance, strength, devotion. No one would have blamed him for just laying down after falling on a quarter mile race. That's a, nearly impossible to catch up. But he gets up and runs. And, and after he wins that Olympic medal in, in 1924, uh, he was quite the national hero. But he announced shortly after that win that he'd be retiring from running and headed to China to serve as a missionary. 
God made me for China, he said. And that statement hung in my mind this week. God made me for China. And it's the latter part of his life that's really interesting. Um, He was born in China to missionary parents. And after his Olympic win, he settled in China with his wife, Florence, just as the clouds of World War II began to rise. And every now and then, uh, Eric and and Florence would would head to Canada where he had a sibling. um, And they would try to escape from the turmoil, but they always returned. And Eric would continually put himself in harm's way for the sake of of the gospel throughout this time of political upheaval. Um, Eric McTaxis in one of his books did a little section on um, Liddell. And he said this, that um, during this period, Eric was uh, captured by Japanese soldiers trying to gain supplies for his community. At times, he'd ride through a city on his bike to realize that all the men had been murdered and the women had been raped. He was shot at as he tried to help. He baptized new believers as bombs were exploding around him. In the middle of this mess, of this complete turmoil, um, he had two daughters and Florence, his wife, was pregnant with the third. And so they decided that um, Florence would take the children out of China, but Eric would stay to continue to minister through this season. And as conflict continued to rise, eventually they forced all the foreigners to a, a kind of prison camp. And in this prison camp, Eric um, served the kids, he taught little classes for the kids, he played, they all referred to him as Uncle Eric, and those who were with him said that he was selfless, caring when no one else cared, they would say, some would say he was the closest thing to a saint if I ever saw one, the most Christ-like person I ever met, um, constantly pouring himself out for people in this camp, and in a time of his life where he could have really wallowed, he could have really laid down, he could have... um, laid on his bed and and sulked all day why would God have allowed for him to be put in the prison camp while his family's far away and he's stuck with these people but he doesn't wallow at all but he continues to run he gets up if he ever ran in the natural in the spiritual the man ran God had made him for China Certainly God had made him for this hour and he was in this camp. He must be in this camp to serve and love these people who are going through tragedy. As time went on, he he continued to work hard. He started to have these kind of debilitating headaches. And he wrote to his wife and to his family that um, the doctors thought he was having a nervous breakdown because he was working so hard. And so they put him on a schedule and tried to slow him down. But eventually the headaches turned out to be a tumor and he slips into a short coma right before he passes away. And he died away from his family serving these people in the prison camp. And the, the people in camp with him said that he woke up every morning to spend time with God. He prayed, read scripture, sat before him. He belonged to Jesus totally and fully gave all of himself to the gospel. And he didn't just persevere in his natural running, but he persevered in his calling. There was a race that he was running that was much deeper than anything that could be seen. They all had heard of Eric Liddell who fell down in a quarter mile race and got back up and kept running. But there was no one watching him now as he lived in this camp and in a prison in China. But he's still getting up and still running. He gets up every morning, man, and spends time with the Lord. He gets up every day to serve kids who have no parents because they've lost their lives in the war. He gets up every day to teach and to show love. And nobody's watching him or cheering now. He's just getting up. He keeps running. 
And it was 60 years after his death that China released a piece of information that no one knew that his parents or his, his children didn't know, his wife didn't know. No one knew that um, Eric was included in a prisoner exchange, that he should have been sent home quite a time before his death. That they came to him while he was in prison and say, said that you're free to go. You're a part of a, an exchange between Japan and, um, and Great Britain. And um, it was his time to get on a ship and head home. And he could have went home. He could have tapped out. But instead he gave his spot away to a pregnant woman. And 60 years after his death, they're still learning of the extreme selflessness of this man. And that's the height of Christ's likeness to give your life away for someone else. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend, Jesus said. This is a giving away of his life to a, to a pregnant woman. He ran his race well, strained, kept pressing when he had every excuse to lie down. Now, I'm not much for running, and I probably should be. I've loved that joke that's gone around the internet that says, I wanted to go out for a jog, but Proverbs says the wicked run when no one is chasing them, so I went home. That, that, my friends, has become my life verse. But as we approach our passage from Philippians chapter 3 this morning, Paul is going to use running imagery. Paul lives in the Greco-Roman world where the Olympics was birth um, and, and competition flourished. And as Paul analyzes his own life and his own spiritual walk, he calls it a race. And Paul says that, that in order to complete the race, he has to press on. He has to strain forward. He says, there's a goal I'm working toward and I have to endure to grasp it fully. The Christian life requires an exertion of energy to focus on, to lock into the prize and a zeal to with every fiber of your being strain towards the goal. Paul says that's what the Christian life is like, running with every fiber of your being. Let's read the passage and I'll, and I'll do my best to try to pull out some, some things from here that will help us. Uh, we'll pray that the Lord will stir us to a greater zeal to run our races for His glory this morning. Philippians chapter 3 starting in verse 12 reads this. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. First, Paul, the great apostle, says, I have not obtained this. Or am already perfect. Paul starts with a sense of dissatisfaction within his own spiritual walk. We are all tempted to wear 
this spiritual facade mass thing that stinks of religious aroma that says, I have made it and I am the next greatest thing. But that's not Paul. He starts with, I have, I've not obtained it. I'm not there yet. I've still got a race to run. I've not, I'm not a finished product, but I'm still pressing on. It requires the Christian life an honest sense of dissatisfaction. Are you satisfied this morning with where you've come? Or are you still hungry for more? Is there still more of Jesus to have? Paul says the Christian life requires this kind of honesty, the kind that owns its own shortcomings, acknowledges its own lack of progress, and strives on towards progress. I had to read this line quite a a few times this week and look at the grammatical structure of it to to understand exactly what Paul was saying. Because at first read, it's tempting to just think that Paul says, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make perfection my own. It says, not that I've already obtained this or, or am already perfect. The emphasis is not necessarily on only the being perfect, but it's on obtaining this. He says, um, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. He's not only saying not that I'm already perfect. Holiness is an aim in the life of a believer. But it's not so much that in our ambition towards holiness, it's not like we're aiming at this abstract theory, this this concept, this outside of a set of moral standards. It's not as if holiness is this outward thing that we're pursuing. Um, Holiness is is Jesus-ness. And so holiness is more than an abstract concept. It's a, it's a person that we pursue. And as we pursue the person, holiness as a concept is, is the, the natural, logical um, working out of that pursuit. And so Paul's not just saying, I'm pursuing perfection. I really want to be a perfect person. And so I'm striving and I'm running after this sense of absolute, total, impeccable morality. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that I haven't obtained this or I'm not already perfect. The perfection is not the, the, the first of the pursuit. <coughs> Again, holiness is profoundly important, but the motivation for the pursuit is a desire to conform to the image of Jesus. The pursuit is driven by a fascination and obsession with the person of Jesus. It's totally losing yourself to the character of who he is. It's like waking up in the morning and meditating on just how wonderful this man is and allowing that obsession to lead you towards Christ's likeness. The thing that you cherish is the thing that you become. That's a principle of the Psalms that and and a principle that gets funny. Um, the psalmist will say, sometimes you, you worship stupid idols and they make you stupid. Sometimes what the psalmist said. I always enjoy that. Um, but, but the point is, is that what you obsess over, you begin to embody. And that's really what a pursuit of holiness is. It's loving Jesus so much that you begin to manifest him to the earth. And so Paul doesn't just say, not that I'm already perfect. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. This. So he's not merely talking about excelling in personal holiness. He's talking about obtaining this and becoming perfect. So there are two ends in mind. Obtaining this and perfection in holiness. He has not yet obtained this. What is this? 
Remember that last week we read that Paul, earlier in chapter 3, counts all things as lost. Everything is rubbish in Paul's life in order that he may know Jesus. It's all garbage, remember we said, except that he knows Jesus. All rubbish. And in verse chapter 3, verse 10, again, which is just two verses before, verse, chapter 3, verse 10, he says this. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection that I may share his sufferings. How many in the modern church today want to share in his sufferings? That's a question we might want to ask. May share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection for the dead. So this is the this that he wants to obtain. The NLT translated uh, of that line. I haven't achieved these things These things are this. First, knowing him. Second, knowing the power of his resurrection. Third, sharing in his sufferings. Fourth, becoming like him in his death. Fifth, attaining resurrection from the dead. That is the this. Knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, sharing in his suffering, dying in his death, and obtaining the resurrection from the dead. Now that language is filled with eschatological themes or end time themes. We get attaining the resurrection from the dead. That that speaks of the last day when our bodies rise from the grave. But it's also filled with, with intimacy language. Knowing him. Sharing in his suffering. Knowing the power of his resurrection. In short, Paul is saying that he has not completed the race of the Christian life because there is more of Jesus to know. There is more of his life suffering, death, and resurrection to share in. There's more of Jesus' life for Paul to share in. There's more of his likeness to mature into. More of Jesus to know. More of the life of Jesus to share. More of the nature of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus to mature into. I've not yet made it. There's There's more. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the brilliant, prayerful man who suffers, that Apostle Paul says there's more of Jesus still to know. The suffering Paul, whose back is torn. I love the the conclusions of Galatians chapter 6. I don't know if I've preached that yet here. Uh, or or if we've talked much about that. Um, But in the conclusion of Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, leave me alone for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. And what he means by that is that, um, have you, do you remember Jesus' back, how it's so torn up and beaten? My back is also torn up and beaten. The scars that Jesus carried, I, I carry also. I've shared in Jesus' suffering to the extent that I bear on my flesh the scars that Jesus bore on his flesh. That, Paul says, there's still more of Jesus' suffering to share in. That, Paul says, there's still more of Jesus for me to know. The Paul who says, I know of a man who was caught up into the third heaven. Clearly speaking of himself, but in a humble way. Paul who has been caught up into the glories of heaven and who has gazed upon Jesus. Paul who was knocked off of his donkey and and heard the very voice of God. Paul says, I haven't made it. There's still more of him. There's infinitely more of Jesus for me to experience. And the entire point of this series, and I always do a bad job of keeping the thrust 
central. The, the entire point, um, I, what I wanted to do was to examine the heart of Paul that is obsessed with Jesus. That is like the, one of the strongest things that I walk away from Philippians. Paul is obsessed with Jesus. And what he's saying here is, I'm still running because there's more of Jesus. I'm still getting up in the morning preaching the gospel because there is infinitely more of Jesus to be had. And when your life really revolves around the person of Jesus, you can't quit running. You can't poke your chest out and say, I'm so holy when your life really revolves around Jesus. Because when you see how holy he is, you realize how far from that you are. Paul says, I haven't fully known him. Fully experienced his life. I'm not fully matured into his nature. I've still got a race to run. And so Southern Bible Belt Christianity, Western Christianity says the whole of the Christian life is getting saved. Say the prayer, walk down the aisle, sit down and be quiet. And I want to tell you this morning that the whole of the Christian life is being saved. Like all of the Christian life is living from this incredible thankfulness that Jesus has washed you, has cleansed you. All of the Christian life is being surprised by the fact that you are not going to be judged, that God actually loves you. All of the Christian life is exploring the great benefits of salvation. But the Christian life is not getting saved and then sitting down. Like you didn't get the t-shirt and you don't go home. Like you started something and there's an infinitely good Jesus to explore praise God you're washed of your sins and now you can explore him don't sit down and shut up and sit on your hands that's not that's not Christianity your salvation experience is not the end of your journey it's the stinking beginning you've just got off the tracks you're just getting going you don't get to wear the t-shirt Paul Paul in the end of his life, Philippians says, there's more. There's more. And I'm confident that Paul is not exerting some kind of false humility here. He's, he's saying, no, I'm, I'm not there yet. I've, again, been caught up to the third heaven, suffered, preached in power, raised the dead, seen the sick healed, seen thousands come to know Jesus, but I'm not there yet. There's still more of him to explore. Paul says, I pick myself up and I keep running. There's more ahead. So Paul is running and you are called to run. And so what does that entail? First, Paul says, I have to forget what lies behind. Yesterday's failures can't dictate tomorrow's outcome. We all know this and it's important to remind ourselves of this. One of the greatest lies the enemy whispers in the ear of the believers is, is you didn't pray yesterday. You're not an intercessor. You're not a prayerful person. You're a fraud. What's the point of getting up tomorrow early to pray? You're not going to, you never fulfill what you've set out to do. You're going to quit sooner or later. Lay down. And as the believer struggles through sin patterns, The enemy says stuff like, you may be sexually pure for a little while, but you always fail. You might as well just enjoy it. You can't beat it. Lay down. And some of us are wrestling through addiction this morning. Alcoholism, addiction to pornography or addiction to whatever substance has has got its hook in you. And the enemy says, you'll never get free from that. You're going to fall sooner or later. Just lay down. 
And I want you to imagine this morning, Erica, though, laying in the dirt and everything in the natural saying, you can't, you can't catch up, just lay down. You know, running is hard. You know, it like involves moving your limbs. Who wants to do that? Like who wants to exert energy and be all out of breath? It's much easier just to lay down. And the enemy does everything he can to like cause you to think of your mistake yesterday and then allow that mistake to become a piece of your identity. And now because you fell into sexual sin yesterday, you are a person who is perverse and you, you can't ever get out of it because you've always struggled with alcoholism. You're an alcoholic who's always going to struggle with alcoholism. And the enemy wants you to carry that identity. But Paul says, if you're going to run, you have to forget yesterday. Forget it. The enemy does everything he can to get you to wallow in your defeat. And it's easier sometimes to wallow in your defeat. Lay down and take it. And if he can get you to take that, that bait, you will quit running. He'll say, you're not disciplined enough to have a devotional life. You're not bold enough to share your faith. Lay down. But the proverb says the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets his butt back up. Paul says, if you want to finish the race, you have to forget yesterday and get back up and keep running. Yesterday is gone. Paul also teaches us clearly that in Jesus, your sins are washed. What you did yesterday, if you'll truly repent, come to God with repentance and faith, it will be washed by the blood of Jesus. What does yesterday have to say to the blood of Jesus? What does yesterday have to say to those who have been fully washed by the spotless blood of the Lamb? Nothing. If you're struggling with addiction this morning, you can break out of bondage. Nobody said you were strong enough. I know you're not strong enough. Jesus is strong enough and community is strong enough. You don't have to be strong enough to get out of your addiction. You've got to be desperate enough and willing to get up and keep running. We're, um, we're getting ready to launch our next session of Connect Groups. And we wanted to mention, I wanted to mention this morning, if you are struggling with repetitive sin patterns or any kind of addiction, um, we're going to launch a thing called Freedom Groups. And Freedom Groups are going to be aimed at helping you to get out of sin patterns. It's going to be life-on-life discipleship. Freedom Groups are going to be a place where you can get accountability, guys, with other guys and girls, with the women, with other women. Um, and so if you need accountability and you say, I'm not strong enough, man, lean into the church. Watch out for those freedom groups. We'll start signups next next um, Sunday. But the point being that yesterday was yesterday. What matters is what you do today. But I think that forgetting yesterday's failure was not all of what Paul has in mind. Remember earlier in chapter 3, he says that he counts all of yesterday's successes as garbage. Paul says, all of my spiritual pedigree, everything that I've done, everywhere that I've excelled, it's all rubbish. It's all garbage. I don't think Paul is just saying, forget yesterday's failures. I think he's also saying, forget yesterday's successes. Like you didn't do so well yesterday that you get to just coast now. You went on a missions trip 10 years ago and that was your crowning moment of fulfilling the Great Commission. 
You had an encounter with the Holy Spirit at a revival meeting last year, and now you really know the Holy Ghost. You served the poor one Christmas, and you pat yourself on the back and say, when I gave to the least of these a cup of water, I gave it to Jesus. And all these things are wonderful and godly, but there's no place to hang your hat. You don't start out the gate running fast and then stop and walk and say, I made it. I used to know a pastor who would say that your testimony should have an expiration date like bad milk. He said, you shouldn't be able to live always telling the testimonies of yesterday. If God's not doing something in your life today, then sit down. That's what he would say to his congregation. I think he was a little bit rude. I don't agree with that fully. There, there, there are some things God does in your life that you just savor for all of your life. Salvation's that way. You just savor it. And you just enjoy it. There are some things that God does that you live just thrilled with. But the heart of what my pastor friend was trying to say is, there's more. The heart of what my pastor friend was trying to say is, keep running. Don't hang your hat on yesterday's testimony. What does God want to do today? I've had an encounter or two with the Holy Ghost, but I don't know him fully. I don't really know him. And so I get up and I keep praying and I keep pressing. There's more to learn, more to taste, more to see. I think of the commandments to disciple the nations, care for the poor. Those are not commandments that are fulfilled in a moment. Those are commandments that are fulfilled in a lifetime. The commandments to be a disciple maker is not something you do in a two month period. That's a commandment of being. It's a commandment to be a disciple maker. The commandment to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to do evangelism, is not a commandment that's fulfilled on one Saturday afternoon. It's a commandment that's filled as you are an evangelizer. It's a commandment of being. It's something you do regularly. It begins to seep down into your identity. Loving God is not something that you do 30 minutes in the morning before you get ready to go to work. It is something that you do 30 minutes in the morning when you get ready to go to work, but it's not done there. You keep loving him when you get in your car and you drive to work and someone cuts you off and you want to give him that middle finger, but you don't give him that middle finger because you're still loving Jesus. Some of you do. Just kidding. Don't be putting that little sticker, church sticker on your car if you're a middle finger flyer, okay? Take it off. Take it off. (laughs) Missions is not a one-time trip, but you live on mission every day, always listening to the Holy Ghost for your next assignment. Sometimes it is going on a missions trip. Sometimes it is going overseas. But sometimes it's going to work, going to work and then inviting a coworker to lunch who you know is struggling and doesn't know Jesus. Sometimes you're on mission there. And sometimes it's inviting a neighbor over for dinner and just listening and loving. Like being, being a missionary, someone who's on mission is not something that you do just for two weeks and then put it on the shelf. These commands are to resonate within your identity. You don't give financially one and done. You're givers. As Christians, we are givers. We give systematically. We give to the poor. We give to missions. We give regularly to the church to continue the mission. We're givers. It's not something, it's not like you write a check and you're done. It's who we are. It's identity. It seeps into who we are. You don't allow the obedience of yesterday 
to satisfy the command for obedience today. Because what you'll do is you'll say, I, I went to lunch with someone last week and I tried to share my faith. And then God will nudge you and say, hey, um, you see so-and-so, he's really struggling today. Maybe you should invite him. And what you'll do is go, no, no, I did that already. And Paul says, forget yesterday. Forget it. Forget your failures. Forget your successes. When you're running a race, you can, you can have the, the best out of the gate. But if you decide halfway through that you're going to stop and lay down for a while, you're, that's not running a race. You don't get the prize for stopping and laying down. Paul says, forget yesterday. Get up today. Run today. If you had an encounter with the Holy Spirit 30 years ago, don't stop there. It's an incredible thing, and this is... Yeah. It's an incredible thing that, that many in our movement, we, we thought that Christianity, all, all Christianity was about was getting people saved. And again, it, it is all that Christianity is about to some extent. It's the fullness of Christianity is coming to know Jesus. Um, but it's, we, we knew that it didn't stop there, that there had to be more of God. And so all we did was we moved the finish line from getting saved to getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so you get saved and now there's a second experience in getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, and I had like that kind of that kind of encounter with God, what I would call a baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoken tongues. And I would highly suggest it. Like I, I think if you haven't had an encounter with God's Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit haven't manifested, you should, you should do that. You should start praying for that. But what we did in our movement was then we, we just hung our hat there. We moved the finish line from salvation to baptism of the Holy Spirit and we just stopped. And many in Spirit-filled churches are just going, I, I spoke in tongues and it's over. And I'm like, no, like, Acts chapter 2 says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you so that you could be witnesses to the end of the earth. Even the baptism of the Holy Spirit had a means to an end. The the Spirit of God was going to consume you so that you were able to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So you would get up in the morning on fire for God. And then as you read the text in Acts, it's like they're filled with the Holy Spirit and then filled with the Holy Spirit again. And then there's these miracles. And then sometimes they preach and thousands get saved. And their lives are like this continuing experience of the Holy Spirit. The finish line, I want to give you a, 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 a finish line this morning. I know you really want a finish line. You want a place where you can hang your hat. Your finish line is when they throw dirt in your face and your heart quits pumping and your lungs don't work anymore. That's your finish line. Until then, you should be experiencing God. Until then, you serve God faithfully. Until then, you get up in the morning and you say, God, what's my assignment today? What do you have for me today? And some days God will say, today I want you to rest in the word. I want you to soak in prayer. Today, sometimes I hear God say, today I want you to spend a little extra time with your kids. That's still obeying God. It's not like God's always asking for us to do crazy, get out on the streets and evangelize every day. But he is asking us something. And it's, are you hearing him? And are you working? And are you, are you running? So he says, I forget what lies behind. Yesterday is just that yesterday. And I strain forward. Paul says, I am always on my toes. I am always leaning in. And you could say, Caleb, you told us last week that Christianity is not a, is not a religion of works. 
And it's not. The Christian life is, is not a, a life that says, I'm going to do as much. I'm going to run my race so that God accepts me. The Christian life is, I'm going to run my race because I'm so excited about what God has done. I am fascinated with what He is doing. And I am enthralled with zeal to see Him come in my community. I'm running out of passion, not out of guilt. We have become kingdom citizens by the performance of Christ. He performed and we rest in his performance. But kingdom citizens don't live in comas. You didn't pass from spiritual death to a deep spiritual sleep. You didn't get saved to live in a coma. You were born again to be stinking alive. Breathed on by God's breath. Those who have been born of the Spirit now bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. They declare the king to the nations. They express the culture of heaven to a world ate up with hell. You didn't get born again to lie in a casket. You were born again to breathe, to run, for your lungs to inhale and exhale, to exert energy, to live alive. I don't know if you know this or not, but there will be no evangelizing in heaven. There will be no praying for the lost at the return of Jesus. There will be no more storing up treasures for yourself. There's a day when the race will be finished. So Paul says, I press on. I exert my energy. I was reading Tozer again this week and he uh, talked about he was kind of tracing the history of the Western church. And he talked about a movement in the church that um, y'all forgive me. The movement of the church that began to heavily emphasize scholasticism. Um, The movement in, in the church, and it was largely across the church, that began to become fascinated with precise doctrine and 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 really trying to understand Pauline theology. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that movement at all. We, we do want to have precise doctrine. We do want to really understand what, what Paul was saying. But, but Tozer said that what happened was the emphasis of Christianity now became all about what you knew and what you understood. And what we were saying from pulpits is you need to believe the right doctrine. And Tozer said there's a great difference between having Pauline theology and having a Pauline existence. He said there's a great difference between having a Pauline understanding of theology and having a Pauline life. Because Paul obviously had Pauline theology. It was his stinking brain and hand that's writing. Um, But Paul also ran. He experienced God. He hungered and thirsted for more. He evangelized. He suffered well. He prayed. He loved people. He didn't just believe a set of doctrines. He believed a set of doctrines that led to a, a standard of living. The doctrines led to a race to run. And he ran it. And, and Tozer was saying that in the West, we just keep saying, believe this, the set of doctrines and that's all there is to it. And it's like, no, you do need to believe the set of doctrines. But then at some point, you've got to live a life that appropriately reflects the set of doctrines. And if you really believe in a, a literal hell, then maybe you should get up in the morning and like try to love people and share the gospel. 
And if you really believe in the presence of God, like maybe you would, maybe you would pray and really try to relish in it. And if you believe that God sent the Holy Spirit, if you believe the words of Jesus and He said, when I go, I won't leave you as orphans, but I'll send you the Holy Ghost. If you believe that text, if you have that understanding, what do you do with it? So yes, we want to have Pauline theology, but we also want to have Pauline experience. Paul's not driven by a fear of not entering heaven's gates. Paul is driven by a motivation to bring heaven to earth. Paul wants to be known in heaven and feared in hell. And so he says, I press, I exert my energy, I run. There is more of Jesus to know, more of his life to share in, more of his nature to mature into. Paul says, I press. How's your pressing this morning? How's your pressing this morning? If you ask me that directly, I think I'd have to tell you that my current season of life has me pretty tired most days. My kids are a handful. But in my heart, I think I can say with integrity, I'm still hungry for God. I'm still desperate to share in his sufferings, to share in his life, to share in his death. I'm still passionate about growing in his likeness. Some days my pressing is better than others, but I think I could stay. I'm still pressing. Can you say that with me this morning? Are you pressing? Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come. I don't want to beat a dead horse. How many times does the scripture use marriage imagery when it speaks of our relationship with Jesus? Everyone loves the wedding ceremony. It's beautiful and celebratory and wonderful. We had a beautiful wedding, Haley and I. But you also know that marriage starts the next morning, right? Marriage is not all wrapped up in the moment in which you became married. That and so follow the imagery. It's, it, the salvation experience is wonderful and beautiful and celebratory. And you live all of your life from the salvation experience. But in the same sense, it's not all about the wedding. Like you, you get up in the morning and you've got to still foster intimacy. And 10 years down the road, how's your marriage? You don't just say, I, you don't just, when you ask someone 10 years down the road, you say, how's your marriage? They don't just say, our wedding was beautiful. <laughs> right? And, and when someone asks you, one of the hardest questions people ask me is, what is God doing in your life today? I hate that question. Because some days I have to honestly say, I don't know. Because I just grabbed a Pop-Tart and put on my shoes and ran out the door. I don't know what he's doing today. But, but in my pressing, I want to be at a place where I can always say, today he was speaking to me about my selfishness. Today he was showing me the need to be more compassionate. There are things... In, in Haley and I's lives that we feel like God's pressing on us right now, that there's an area of loving people well that we are intentionally trying to step out in. Like right now, God is trying to, trying to teach us to love people better as a family. What is God doing in your life today? Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.